You Cannot Leave by Alma Villanueva. You cannot leave my aunt's house without a full stomach. She would be offended. She's small and earth color. Her face records her mother's people, the hills and desert of Sonora. Her eyes hold an eclipse of clarity, pain. Once, when I was small, I remember her and I eating a cluster of grapes in a matter of minutes, each one so delicious we couldn't wait for the next. And when the last grape was gone, we laughed because the grape's skeleton looked so funny. Before she was born, her father recognized her mother and converted he was a minister and married her, his Indian blood mixed with that of the Spanish conqueror. I saw a picture of his congregation in Mexico, his wife's brother holding their firstborn, who died before five, and the majority of his followers' Indian eyes stared out at me, and I recognized them, my aunt, not yet born, among them. I grew up hearing my aunt's visions and dreams. She had no one but a child to tell them to. She saw the bombing of Japan and the back of God, and a neighbor's son opened the front door and called her the day he was reported missing in action. And she dreamt my house and knew where the trees stood before she ever came. And she's always apologetic for staying too long. And she's always sorry you're leaving too soon. Talking and telling in Spanish to English. In English for the skeleton. In Spanish for the flesh. We sit for hours. She being older for a while. I being oldest in my turn. Taking turns as we've always done. And she tells me. She tried going to an Anglo church. But their faces were blank and their eyes mute. They did not recognize her. And with the spontaneity of a laugh held long, within her she smiles as she tells me, Mi gente son el color de la tierra. And the clarity overshadows the pain. And she lapses and offers me a cup of coffee, and I drink it or she will be offended. Greetings, dear listeners of Tres Cuentos, the bilingual podcast dedicated to the literary, historical, and traditional narratives of Latin America. I am Carolina Quiroga-Stoltz, and today we continue exploring the courageous and at times painful journey of Latinx in the United States. About 80 years ago, when I arrived in Johnson City, Tennessee, to study a master's in storytelling at East Tennessee State University, I was lucky to find a campus job at the LCRC, the Language and Culture Resource Center. At the time, the director of the center was Dr. Ardis Nelson. We called her La Jefa. She became a great friend and mentor. Most of the students working at the LCRC came from different backgrounds, 
Most had some Latino connection, but others were learning to speak Spanish. I thought it was fantastic to hear the facility with which much younger students would switch from English to Spanish and vice versa in one sentence. I wished I could do it, but my poor brain was working 24-7 just to keep me sane. Never in my life had I had to talk and think and write in English all the time. One day, while conversing with an older friend that also worked there, like me, she was from South America. I said that it would be amazing to always speak Spanglish. Her eyes almost popped out of her face. She, like many other Latinos of older generations, did not find that very amusing. But I thought, what is the deal with the purity of the language? In the end, all languages not only have evolved and continue to change, but in the very beginning, they were invented by someone. Languages did not sprout thanks to some sort of divine inspiration. They were the product of the human need to communicate. But today, in many places around the world, people use language to categorize and segregate the other, the newcomer, the stranger. In this episode, I want to thank the Chicana author and poet Alma Luz Villanueva for granting permission to read one of her poems, the first one, which is called You Cannot Leave. Also, if you follow Tres Cuentos on Facebook or Instagram, you probably saw the first interview I conducted with Dr. Nicolás Canelos, who graciously agreed to share more about the history of Latinx literatures in the U.S., you can find the videos on our website, trescuentos.com, and feel free to share them. The interview is in both languages. The Chicana author Gloria Ansaldúa wrote today's narrative, and you can find the text in her book, Borderlands, La Frontera, The New Mestiza, published by Aunt Lute Books. And you can find more and even get the book at www.auntlute.com. Com. The narration that follows comes in the voice of Adriana Flores Ragade from the program Latinx Americas Podcast. But I will tell you more about our new voices when we reach the comments. Today's story explores the struggles with language in a world that uses the excuse of purity of language to classify, discriminate, and turn people against each other. How to Tame a Wild Tongue by Gloria Ansaldúa We're going to have to control your tongue, the dentist says, pulling out all the metal from my mouth. Silver bits plop and tinkle into the basin. My mouth is a mother load. The dentist is cleaning out my roots. I get a whiff of the stench when I gasp. I can't cap that tooth yet. You're still draining, he says. We're going to have to do something about your tongue. I hear the anger rising in his voice. My tongue keeps pushing out the wads of cotton, pushing back the drills, the long thin needles. I've never seen anything as strong or as stubborn, he says. And I think, how do you tame a wild tongue? Train it to be quiet. 
How do you brittle and saddle it? How do you make it lie down? Who is to say that robbing a people of its language is less violent than war? By Ray Wynne Smith. I remember being caught speaking Spanish at recess. That was good for three licks on the knuckles with a sharp ruler. I remember being sent to the corner of the classroom for talking back to the Anglo teacher when all I was trying to do was tell her how to pronounce my name. If you want to be American, speak American. If you don't like it, go back to Mexico where you belong. I want you to speak English. Payar buen trabajo tienes que saber hablar el inglés bien. ¿Qué vale toda tu educación si todavía hablas inglés con un accent? My mother would say, mortified that I spoke English like a Mexican. At Pan American University, I and all the Chicano students were required to take two speech classes. Their purpose? To get rid of our accents. Attacks on one's form of expression with intent to censor are a violation of the First Amendment. El anglo con cara inocente nos arranca la lengua. Wild tongues can't be tamed. They can only be cut out. Oye como ladra el lenguaje de la frontera. Quien tiene boca se equivoca. Bocho, cultural traitor, you're speaking the oppressor's language by speaking English. You are ruining the Spanish language. I have been accused by various Latinos and Latinas. Chicano Spanish is considered by the purest and by most Latinos deficient, a mutilation of Spanish. But Chicano Spanish is a border tongue which developed naturally. Change, evolución, enriquecimiento de palabras nuevas por invención o adopción have created variants of Chicano Spanish. Un nuevo lenguaje. Un lenguaje que corresponde a un modo de vivir. Chicano Spanish is not incorrect. It is our living language. For a people who are neither Spanish nor live in a country in which Spanish is the first language, for a people who live in a country in which English is a reigning tongue, but who are not Anglo. For a people who cannot entirely identify with either standard, formal Castilian, Spanish, nor standard English. What recourse is left to them but to create their own language? A language that they can connect their identity to. One capable of communicating the realities and values true to themselves. A language with terms that are neither Espanol ni Inglés, but both. We speak a patois, a forked tongue, a variation of two languages. Chicano Spanish sprung out of the Chicano's need to identify ourselves as a distinct people. We needed a language with which we could communicate with ourselves, a secret language. For some of us, language is a homeland closer than the Southwest. For many Chicanos today live in the Midwest and the East. And because we are a complex, heterogeneous people, we speak many languages. Some of the languages we speak are 1. Standard English 2. Working Class and Slang English 3. Standard Spanish 4. Standard Mexican Spanish 5. North Mexican Spanish Dialect 6. Chicano Spanish Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and California have regional variations. 7. Tex-Mex 8. Pachuca, called Galo. 
My home tongues are the languages I speak with my sister and brothers, with my friends. They are the last five listed, with a six and seven being closest to my heart. From school, the media, and job situations, I picked up standard and working class English. From Mama Grande, Locha, and from reading Spanish and Mexican literature, I picked up standard Spanish and standard Mexican Spanish. From los recién llegados, Mexican immigrants, and braceros, I learned the North Mexican dialect. With Mexicans, I'll try to speak either standard Mexican Spanish or the North Mexican dialect. From my parents and Chicanos living in the valley, I picked up Chicano Texas Spanish, and I speak it with my mom, younger brother, aunts, and older relatives. With Chicanas from Nuevo Mexico or Arizona, I will speak Chicano Spanish a little, but often they don't understand what I'm saying. With most California Chicanos, I speak entirely in English, unless I forget. When I first moved to San Francisco, I rattle off something in Spanish, unintentionally embarrassing them. Often, it is only with another Chicana Tejana that I can talk freely. Words distorted as English are known as Anglicisms or pochismos. The pocho is an anglicized Mexican or American of Mexican origin who speaks Spanish with an accent color, is characteristic of North Americans, and who distorts and reconstructs the language according to the influence of English. Tex-Mex or Spanglish comes most naturally to me. I may switch back and forth from English to Spanish in the same sentence or in the same word. With my sister and my brother Nune and with Chicano Tejano contemporaries, I speak in Tex-Mex. From kids and people my own age, I picked up Pachuco. Pachuco, the language of the Zoot Suiters. It's a language of rebellion, both against standard Spanish and standard English. It is a secret language. Adults of the culture and outsiders cannot understand it. It is made up of slang words from both English and Spanish. Ruka means girl or woman. Bato means guy or dude. Chale means no. Simon means yes. Churo is sure. Tag es periquear. Pigionar means petting. Que gacho means how nerdy. Ponte águila means watch out. Death is called la pelona. Through lack of practice and not having others who can speak it, I've lost most of the pachuco tongue. Linguistic Terrorism Deslenguadas Somos los del español deficiente We are your linguistic nightmare Your linguistic aberration Your linguistic mestizaje The subjects of your burla Because we speak with tongues of fire We are culturally crucified Racially, culturally, and linguistically Somos huérfanos We speak an orphan tongue Chicanas who grew up speaking Chicano Spanish have internalized the belief that we speak poor Spanish. It is illegitimate as a bastard language. And because we internalize how our language has been used against us by the dominant culture, we use our language differences against each other. Chicana feminists often skirt around each other with suspicion and hesitation. For the longest time, I couldn't figure it out. Then it dawned on me. To be close to another Chicana is like looking into the mirror. 
We are afraid of what we will see there. Pena, shame, low estimation of self. In childhood, we were told that our language is wrong. Repeat attacks on our native tongue diminish our sense of self. The attacks continue throughout our lives. Chicanas feel uncomfortable talking in Spanish to Latinas, afraid of their censure. Their language was not outlawed in the countries. They had a whole lifetime of being immersed in their native tongue. Generations, centuries in which Spanish was the first language, taught in school, heard on radio and TV, and read in the newspaper. If a person, Chicana or Latina, has low estimation of my native tongue, she also has a low estimation of me. Often with Mexicanas and Latinas, we will speak English as a neutral language. Even among Chicanas, we tend to speak English at parties or conferences. Yet, at the same time, we're afraid the author will think we're agringadas because we don't speak Chicano Spanish. We oppress each other trying to out-Chicano each other, vying to be the real Chicanas, to speak like Chicanos. There is no one Chicano language, just as there is no one Chicano experience. A monolingual Chicana whose first language is English or Spanish is just as much a Chicana as one who speaks several variances of Spanish. A Chicana from Michigan or Chicago or Detroit is just as much a Chicana as one from the Southwest. Chicano Spanish is as diverse linguistically as it is regionally. By the end of the century, Spanish speakers will comprise the biggest minority group in the U.S., a country where students in high school and colleges are encouraged to take French classes because French is considered more cultured. But for a language to remain alive, it must be used. By the end of the century, English, and not Spanish, will be the mother tongue of most Chicanos and Latinos. So if you want to really hurt me, talk badly about my language. Ethnic identity is twin skin to linguistic identity. I am my language. Until I can take pride in my language, I cannot take pride in myself. Until I can accept as legitimate Chicano, Texas, Spanish, Tex-Mex, and all the other languages I speak, I cannot accept the legitimacy of myself. Until I am free to write bilingually and to switch codes without having always to translate, while I still have to speak English or Spanish when I could rather speak Spanglish. And as long as I have to accommodate the English speakers rather than having them accommodate me, my tongue will be illegitimate. I will no longer be made to feel ashamed of existing. I will have my voice, Indian, Spanish, white. I will have my serpent's tongue, my woman's voice, my sexual voice my poet's voice, I will overcome the tradition of silence. Dear listeners, which of you are willing to give a try to speak Spanglish? Well, before we dive into the issues with speaking Spanish in this country or speaking with an accent, let me introduce today's new voices. First, I want to thank the Chicana author and poet Alma Luz Villanueva for permitting us to read the poem I read at the beginning. 
She has published eight books of poesia, poetry, the most recent of which is called Gracias. She has also written four novels, most recently Song of the Golden Scorpion, a collection of short stories, and The Weeping Woman, La Llorona, and other stories. She has contributed to textbooks used in the U.S. and abroad, and you can find more about her at www.almaluzvillanueva.com, or you can check our website. All the information is there. Reading Ansaldúa's text is Adriana Flores Ragade, is the founder of Latinx America Media and the host of the Latinx America podcast, which highlights Latinx leaders and champions in tech, innovation, and investment. She also hosts a special series on Latinx America education and recently co-founded We Are Diverse Creators, a platform to build community amongst Latinx podcasters to elevate diverse voices. She has held leadership positions in the broadcast media industry and education nonprofit sectors where she focused on building equity and access programs and partnerships. You can listen to her podcast at her website, latinxamerica.com, or you can find her in any podcast app you use. Reading the last narrative, we have Dr. Lorena Gother is the Digital Programs Manager for the U.S. Latino Digital Humanities Program at the University of Houston's Recovering the U.S. Hispanic Literary Heritage. She teaches interdisciplinary courses through the UH Center for Mexican-American Studies. Dr. Gother received her Ph.D. in English Literature and her M.A. in Hispanic Studies, both from Rice University. She is the daughter of Mexican immigrants and grew up on the U.S.-Mexico border. Well, before we start, how about we listen a little bit more about Adriana's podcast, Latinx America. Are you interested in stories of techies, founders, and investors? If you are, then Latinx America might be for you. Listen to our podcast every Wednesday and learn about their personal and professional journey. Check it out and be inspired. Very well. I am ready to dive into the turbulent waters of the purity of languages. For me, this is a tricky subject because I have experienced firsthand a sort of discrimination for having an English in progress. Or as the famous Cuban singer Celia Cruz once said, my English is not very good looking. I remember countless times when people told me, I like your accent. I never really knew if they meant it in a nice way, and I should take it as a compliment, or if it came from a place of sarcasm. The truth is that we all have accents. A while back, when I was applying for a grant to better my storytelling skills, I asked some friends to write me letters of recommendation. I was a bit surprised when I read in one of the letters that I should try to get rid of or soften my accent. I know the suggestion came from a good place, but my self-esteem landed on the pavement. I kept wondering how people managed to understand me with my thick accent. For about five years, I avoided phone conversations. I was afraid I would not understand the other person and worried 
that asking them to repeat would make them angry. I was also terrified that my accent and only having a so-so English would get in the way. So, what got me over that? It was realizing that I am not alone. A very dear friend from Spain once complained, These people do not have imagination. Meaning that people in the U.S. do not try hard enough to understand other accents. They get angry and give up easily. Now, after reading for the first time Gloria Anzaldúa's text, How to Tame a Wild Tongue, which made me cry and laugh at the same time, I came to see another cruel reality, that even Spanish speakers discriminate against those who are working on their Spanish. A side note, I think if people in the U.S. start watching more foreign TV shows with subtitles, they would become more patient and get more used to the idea that the world is a vast and diverse place. That is what we do at home, and we love it. I am learning Japanese and German, too. Anseldua's comments took me back in time to memories that I had archived in the basement of my unconscious. Even though I am technically a native Spanish speaker, and some may claim that Colombian Spanish is one of the best, Learning Spanish was a headache. I felt orthography in school and again in college. I think I probably inherited that from my dear father. Although he is now a very respected professor in Latin America, he employs editors because his orthography is still a work in progress. What always amazes me is how some of those with good grammar and orthography tend to seem themselves as if they were on a European Middle Age crusade, as if they need to convert a bunch of infidels by prayer or by sword. Believe me, I've met some that are quite self-righteous about speaking and writing proper Spanish. Here I recall that last year when I was promoting on Facebook a Spanish episode a lady wrote that she would not continue listening to the podcast because I had started the program by welcoming the audience in the following way. Bienvenidas y bienvenidos. What is wrong with that? Allow me to explain. Spanish nouns have gender, and most formulas, such as a welcoming, tend to use the male word unless, in your audience, you only have females. So, technically, I should have said bienvenidos and not include the female noun of the word. In Spanish, there are not many gender-inclusive words, which is why I think that we should try to use both noun genders even if the sentence takes longer to deliver. But to that lady, it was a sacrilege. I wonder... How she will react when she hears the term Latinx, which today is still under hot debate. But let us not go down that route. I tried to explain to the lady that I was being inclusive, but it fell on deaf ears. These language puritans do not seem to understand that languages evolve over time due to social changes. I dare anyone to open a book from hundred years ago 
and another from 300 years ago, and not notice how their language has changed, including grammar and orthography. On the fascinating subject of Spanglish, from the book Racial Linguistics, How Language Shapes Our Ideas About Race, edited by H. Samia Lim, John R. Rickford, and Arnetha F. Ball, we find the article From Mock Spanish to Inverted Spanglish, Language Ideologies and the Racialization of Mexican and Puerto Rican Youth in the United States. The author of the article, Jonathan Rosa, quotes Ed Morales living in Spanglish, saying, Why Spanglish? There is no better metaphor for what a mixed race culture means than a hybrid language, an informal code. Spanglish is what we speak, but it's also who we Latinos are and how we act and how we perceive the world. It is also a way to avoid the sectarian nature of other labels that define our condition, terms like New Yorican, Chicano, Cuban-American, Dominican York. Whether or not people use the term Spanglish as a unifier of all those other groups, it is something that I think many are unaware that is a label in progress, and it will require more debate. What surprises me is that even though a group of people may have in common the Spanish language, some of them will still find a reason, a motive, or an excuse to create subgroups within the bigger group. Jonathan Rosa states, Stigmatization occurs through the policing of English language used by U.S. Latinas and Latinos. Signs of accents and Spanish language use are regarded as reflections of abject foreignness, regardless of the long history of Spanish language use across the Americas. Oh boy, the language police people are everywhere. Side note, I am a firm believer in the theory of multiple intelligences by Edward Gardner. In 1983, he published Frames of Mind, The Theory of Multiple Intelligences, a unique and enlightening book that I highly recommend. In the book, he suggested that all people have different kinds of intelligences. In other words, we all perceive and relate to the world differently, depending on the type of intelligences that we have most developed. Because, of course, we can have more than one. I have been applying Gardner's theory in my work with children, and believe it or not, it is real. From my own experience, I know that the spoken language is one type of intelligence. It is in the parents' and teachers' best interest to develop strategies to address all other kinds of intelligences. Because, until recently, we have been using only one way to communicate, words. But there is a vast universe of ways to reach the mind and hearts of others. Do you have children, boy or girl, that no matter how many times you talk to them, explain with words a concept, and they do not get it? And then someone else comes 
with an entirely different approach, more kinesthetic, musical, visual, etc., and the kit shines like a star. Well, there you go. All those other types of intelligences are languages too, vehicles of communication. But enough of that. Today I want to talk about history. Did you know that for a long time there has been an English-only language movement? And that last year it was reintroduced in the U.S. Congress under the H.R. 997 English Language Unity Act of 2019? The purpose of this law is to declare English as the official language of the United States, to establish a uniform English language requirement for naturalization and to avoid misconstructions of the English language texts of the law of the United States, pursuant to Congress' powers to provide for the general welfare of the United States and to establish a uniform rule of naturalization under Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. Why is this even being considered? Although the U.S. does not have an official language, Many individual states have declared English as their official language. The English Language Unity Act was introduced in the House of Representatives on February 6, 2019, and from there it was referred to the Committee on Education and Labor and the Judiciary Committee. Later it was referred to the Subcommittee on Immigration and Citizenship, and we have not heard from them yet. They are probably waiting for the election results. Nonetheless, what is interesting is that this is a recurrent concern that the country has not yet solved. So, let's go back in time. In Chapter 91 of the Latino Condition, edited by Richard Delgado and Jean Stefanik, we find more about the linguistic racism towards Spanish in the article The Law of the News a history of Latino lynching and its relation to official English. Richard Delgado tells us that recent research by reputable historians shows that Latinos, particularly Mexican-Americans in the Southwest, were lynched in large numbers during roughly the same period, that is between 1882 and 1968, when lynching of blacks ran rampant. Few people know this. Every school child knows that blacks suffered that fate. Why do so few know about the lynching of Latinos? Moreover, the reasons that motivated the lynching were similar to the two groups acting uppity, taking away jobs, making advances towards a white woman, cheating at cards, practicing witchcraft, and refusing to leave the land the Anglos coveted. With one exception. Mexicans were lynched for acting too Mexican, speaking Spanish too loudly, or reminding Anglos too defiantly of their Mexicanness. Continuing with the subject, Delgado says, The lynching of Mexicans, like that of blacks, was often marked by hilarity and an atmosphere of righteous celebration or public spectacle. 
those conducting the events believed they were acting in full accord with community wishes and meeting a type of informal justice. One historian even describes Anglo vigilantism towards Mexicans as a means of solidifying society and reinforcing civic virtue. The account continues, but I will spare you the gruesome lynching details. Again, I ask myself, where are the movies about this? There has to be records of such awful practices that took place in the Southwest, especially in the states of Texas, California, Arizona, and New Mexico. All these states had a large concentration of Mexican-American population. Delgado says that many lynchings took place near jails and courtrooms when vigilante mobs could not wait for formal justice to proceed. Others occurred in isolated mining camps or, sparsely, settled ranch areas, often with the assistance, formal or informal, of the authorities. William Carrigan estimates that the number of Mexicans murdered run into the thousands. Of course, do not think that Mexicans just retreated to their homes in fear. They fought back, forming Latino civil rights organizations, leading protests and exercising their rights. Delgado tells some, such as mythic outlaw Joaquin Murieta, took matters into their own hands, avenging the lynching of compatriots. Juan Cortina and Gregorio Cortés, the heroes of Cerro Corridos, did the same thing. At this point, I would like you to have a taste of one of those corridos. Now, corridos, or ballads, evolved from the Romance Corrido, a narrative song that the Spanish brought to the Americas in the 16th century. From the book Herencia anthology of Hispanic literature of the United States, published by Arte Publico Press, we learn that the corrido along the Texas-Mexico border often reflects the heightened tension associated with intercultural conflict between Anglos and Texans of Mexican descent from about 1848 through the Second World War. So, from the same book, I will share the corrido wrote in Spanish called Joaquin Murieta, translated by Manuel A. Telechea and Margarita Fernandez Olmos. I will read only an excerpt. I am not an American, but I understand English. I learned it with my brother, forwards and backwards, and any American I make tremble at my feet. When I was barely a child, I was left an orphan. No one gave me any love. They killed my brother and my wife Carmelita. The cowards murdered her. I came from Hermosillo in search of gold and riches. The Indian poor and simple I defended with fierceness, and a good price the sheriffs would pay for my head. From the greedy rich, I took away their money. With the humble and poor, I took off my hat. Oh, what law so unjust to call me a highwayman. 
in the Corrido continues. To my constant question about where the movies are about these painful episodes in the U.S. history, Delgado explains. One key reason is that the primary accounts of the linchamientos appeared in community newspapers, which were printed in Spanish. Since relatively few mainstream historians read Spanish or consulted these sources, Latino lynching remained beyond the can of most mainstream readers. Oral culture, including corridos, actos, and cantares, told of the deaths of brave Mexicans who defied Anglo authority and paid the price. Granted, scholars such as Kerry McWilliams and Arnoldo de Leon mentioned lynching, but still, in contrast with black lynching, the Mexican suffering remained unanswered and forgotten. Why, you may ask? There are several theories. One, Spanish is not widely spoken and accepted, so the access to that history is limited. Two, the horrifying violence against Mexicans has been swept under the carpet. Both Anglo-Americans and Mexican-Americans prefer to forget about it and move on. Delgado even assures that since Latino lynching falls outside the dominant paradigm of American history, the few historians and writers who came across a reference to it may have afforded it scant treatment. So, hush my friends, this is still a taboo subject. Now, why am I putting you through all this so you start connecting the dots? Because all that racial violence led to a racist movement called the English-only movement. As of today, about half of the states in the country have declared English their official language. Although, as we indicated before, not even the country has an official language. However, the current government is working on it. For a while, several workplaces have demanded their employees to speak only English, even when interacting with the public and with each other. The constant argument is that requiring English as the exclusive language will encourage immigrants to assimilate and acquire proficiency in English. As Delgado explains, thereby avoiding the formation of permanent ghettos and a balkanized national culture. That is, to avoid dividing the country that is already divided. On the topic of immigrants assimilating to the new culture, I recall how shocked a dear friend was when she came to the U.S. to visit. She stayed at another friend's house, where she witnessed that the mother of her host who had been living here for at least a decade, had not yet learned English. The lady in question would always ask her daughter to translate for her when needed. I was not impressed. First, several immigrant communities are well-established and continue speaking their native language because that is all they need. Second, the older you get, the harder it is to learn a second language. Tell me about it. Third, English is such a difficult language, so many rules, 
and at the same time, it contradicts itself a lot. In my case, my dear friend and partner in this project, Don Heimel, who we suspect is the first proof listener in the country, helps me untangle this confusion and contradiction. Indeed, if my English sounds decent to your ears, it is because he helps me with that. The English-only movement is not satisfied with making English the official language. Its participants are also determined to ban bilingual education in public schools. That applies to Spanish, Mandarin, and any other language that is currently part of many school curricula. Thus, to the followers of such movement, the United States is an inherently English-speaking country, when we all know that, saying that, denies the real history of the many people that built this nation. Just in case you are not yet convinced that English is used as means for discrimination and instill fear, allow me to quote several examples from the article The English Language Movement by Stephen W. Bender. You can read the text in the book the Latino condition. Bender comments that in the 1990s, a Latino Spanish speaking customer was kicked out of a tavern for refusing to converse in English. The argument of the Anglo side was they start speaking their language and we don't know what they're saying. They could be insulting us, making fun of our wives, or figuring it out a way to rob the place. To that, I simply say, why on earth are your ears dropping? Of course, it all goes down to racism. In this case, linguistic vigilantes who likely do not even speak proper English. In another example from the same article, Bender quotes an incident that occurred in 2005 at a Massachusetts baseball field when the league baseball officials prohibited coaches from instructing players in Spanish, prompting a National Little League spokesperson to confirm no rule prohibited players from speaking Spanish on the baseball field. And there are plenty more examples. Each one gets more infuriating and painful to read. Primarily because at times when I go buy groceries, my mom calls me. And we speak in Spanish. And I'm always on my toes, looking over my shoulder to see who is giving me the evil eye. But let's move on. The lack of accurate facts in the U.S. history taught in schools, the lack of bilingual or even trilingual education, and the continuation of a post-colonial mentality has led many second generations of immigrants to experience a disconnection with the struggles and reality of their parents and grandparents. I recall a dear friend that until recently used an Anglo last name, but after a year of soul-searching, my friend finally re-invited her Hispanic last name to join her again. 
Richard Delgado points out that studies that came out around 2009 of second generation of Latino immigrants in the United States show that their children who are born here exhibit much higher rates of depression, drug taking, and crime than their parents who immigrated to the U.S. as adults. Delgado asks, might the disconnection with their culture and history, accelerated by failure to learn Spanish, be contributing to this increase in pathology and social distress? Delgado answers himself. My suspicion is that it is, and that this constitutes an implicit form of lynching. Whether you agree with this or not, it is something to ponder for a moment. In truth, we all go through a crisis of identity at some point in our lives. And I cannot imagine how complex it is to navigate a world that demands you to speak English in order to succeed. But at the same time, you know that what you love and hold dear are the people that are not fluent in that language or even speak it at all. As an interpreter for Hispanic communities in the past, I met many parents who were embarrassed by their language limitations. Thus, they struggled to raise kids that had assimilated into the U.S. culture. It would be incorrect to assume that the English-only movement has exclusively targeted Spanish speakers. James Crawford reminds us of other targets. In the article, Hold Your Tongue, from the Latino condition, Crawford explains. At various points in our history, linguistic minorities have faced policies of exclusion or coercive assimilation or both. Yet, unlike today's campaigns, these were normally aimed at particular groups for particular purposes. For example, in the 1880s, when federal authorities decided that the first step toward teaching the Indians the mischief and folly of continuing in their barbarous practices was to force their children to attend English-only boarding schools. Or in 1897, when Pennsylvania enacted an English proficiency requirement for minors, seeking to bar Italians and Slavs from the coal fields. Or in 1921, when Republicans in New York pushed through an English literacy test for voting, hoping to disenfranchise one million Yiddish speakers who had an annoying habit of electing Democrats. So, what is the difference between the actions of the English-only movement a hundred years ago and today? Their current argument is that the American language is threatened, therefore the American way of life and their precious nationhood is also threatened. There is so much more I could share with you, at least two more books, but I'd rather close the program with another narrative. The following excerpt was written about 40 years ago by the Chicana singer Joan Baez, who graciously granted permission to share it with you. Dr. Lorena Guthrie reads the segment. You can find the full text in the book, The Chicanos, Mexican-American Voices, edited by Ed Ludwig and James Santibáñez, published by Penguin Books, Baltimore, 1971.
have been asked if I think of myself as a Mexican or a Chicano or as being dark-skinned. This is a difficult question for me to answer since for the past 10 years of my life, I have made a point of not categorizing myself. I have refused to accept the title of singer, for instance. I have not particularly identified myself with any special group, but more with humanity as a whole. I've always thought brown is beautiful and every chance I've had to get into the sun, I've done so because I like being brown. When I entered junior high school, there was prejudice against brown people. It took me a couple of years to realize that my being brown was why I did not make friends easily. I have never really regarded myself as Mexican or English. My father was Mexican and was born in Pueblo, Mexico. On my mother's side, there was English and a dash of Irish. I never thought of myself as an English girl and not too much as Mexican. I feel distant from the cause of any particular minority group in the sense that when I throw myself into the cause, it is that of mankind. I have never felt I should just work with browns or just with blacks or just with whites. In the same way, my husband David, in prison for draft evasion, has not wanted to involve himself only with political prisoners. When he was in Safford, a federal prison, about half the prisoners were Mexicans. After he had finally got them involved in the cause, they reached a point where they too felt like they were participating in the struggle of all persecuted people. I know that color made a difference in junior high school. I think I find difficulty talking about this because I never felt personally badly discriminated against. When I was in junior high, my father was a professor at a university. And although I looked very Mexican, I did not speak Spanish. I felt that Mexican kids were getting a dirty deal, but I did not feel that I was. When my father first came to Stanford University, one of the top professors there would hardly speak to him. My father really had to struggle to break through the barrier. I remember a story my parents told me. In a little town in New York State, somebody called me the N-word because they had never seen anyone as dark as I was. I said, you ought to see me in the summertime. I loved dark colored skin. Once somebody called me a dirty Mexican and a student asked my teacher, is she Mexican? My teacher, attempting to defend me, said, Joan is the very highest breed of Spanish. I said, what do you mean the very highest breed of Spanish? I am Mexican. I made a big point of saying that I was Mexican. And that is all for today. We will be back in two weeks with our last episode on Latinx literatures in the U.S. And this time the spotlight will shine on the narratives of Latino immigrants in the U.S. Until the next cuento. Adios, adios. Tres Cuentos is an exercise of researching, rewriting, and retelling. This podcast was produced, edited, and recorded by Carolina Quiroga Stoltz. Proof reading and proof listening by my good friend Don Heimel. Remember that you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram as Tres Cuentos Podcast. Or you can visit our website, trescuentos.com, and subscribe to our newsletter. The list of credits per song and the sources of this investigation can be found in the transcript. Thanks for listening. Adios, adios.